0: This episode is sponsored by Strands, winner of the Best Open Banking Solution Award for its SAU Open Hub at the 2020 Banking Technology Awards.
1: Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kimathi, my Editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Pablo Reyes, Director of Technology at Strands. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, This week, we are talking about open banking, its implementation and future, as well as Strands' big win at the Banking Technology Awards. First up, however, we're talking about the big news this week and the numbers behind them. We've gone out and picked up some headline figures to discuss. Uh, Pablo, you're our guest, so you get the honor of going first. Uh, What number in the news has caught your eye this week? Thanks,
2: Alex. Uh, my number will be 34%. As HSBC explores different options for the loss-making U.S. arm as profits deep 34%. They have signaled its pivot to Asia and are investing $6 billion in the region while cutting branches in the U.S. A few days ago, on the 22nd of February, the bank announced that its it was still exploring organic and inorganic options for its U.S. retail arm. A Reuters report just one day earlier said that the bank's CEO, Noel Quinn, will announce the closure of all the HSBC U.S. retail operations. And this Tuesday, HSBC had their earnings call and revealed its profit slumped 34% in 2020. The pre-tax profit fell to 8. percent 8 billion last year, obviously it's still a big profit, but down from the 13.35 billion they had in 2019, but the U S arm made a pre-tax loss of a half a billion. So closing the North American division will cut costs considerably for the bank, but they claim that the North America base accounts make still 11% of its overall customer account value, which is obviously significant. They are operating 150 branches in the US, uh, but last year they shut 80 of them.
1: Yeah. Great. And this is, uh, I think this story is uh, one of the, it always reminds me of back when, um, when British uh, pop bands used to become really big over here, these be like the big argument of like, can you break America? Uh, and I feel like this is another one of those stories. Um, America is for banks as '90s pop groups is a, a hard market to crack. Even if you're a massive, massive group like HSBC, uh, and we saw uh, that its uh, its head of innovation, Jeremy Balkan left after six years of working in the US. And HSBC made some inroads, but obviously. Uh, It's never going to quite stack up to the enormous potential that the bank and its group has in Asia, obviously one of its home markets, if you don't count London and the the UK. Uh, And It says it's going to be concentrating pretty much entirely on, on, I think the quote is, high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth clients in Asia and the Asian diaspora um, and trying to really grow its wealth management operations there. but yeah, it's it's another case of like where the U.S. already has a lot of entrenched financial institutions and a lot of people uh, in that country already have very long-standing relationships with local banks and credit unions, which makes it quite hard for, for even large banks from other geographies to break into it. Which, um, what are your thoughts on, on HSBCs? Uh, I mean, we wouldn't call it a failure, but they are issues in the U.S.
0: Yeah, it seems like the FT actually had a scoop about this uh last year. So in November they reported that HSBC's Utail Retail um unit lost 518 million before taxes in the first three quarters of 2020. And that was a margin that has widened from 182 million in 2018 and 279 million um the year before. Um so they thought that sacrificing the unit might not represent too great a loss for such a big bank um, because the U.S. arms 62 billion loan book accounts for less than 6% of HSBC's total. Um, And that was also according to Bloomberg, who seemed to have been on the case as well um, in November. And they thought that HSBC would be potentially opting for a lighter presence in the U.S., especially in light of BBVA's selling off its, its U.S. banking arm to PNC. Um, And I think that when it comes to the the US, it's not just the only market that HSBC has actually waited in terms of exiting because um, we had the sale of its French retail operation in January as well um, of last year. And and it's essentially sending an overview of the business to potential buyers, including Credit Agricole, BNP Paribas um, and and other uh, French units at the time. So it does look like it was really weighing up what it needs to chop up. Um, but then it also was, you know, pivoting, as the story said, towards Asia and the Middle East. Um, and in, in, it's essentially trying to target those, um, you know, high net worth individuals, especially in China and India, um, because as they said, Asia did deliver HSBC a $13 billion adjusted profit before tax in 2020. Um, so yeah, it was a profitable region, and it seems to have made sense for for them to start cutting back in the US market.
1: Excellent. And uh, I, we're, we're going to be—I uh, think we're, all three of our stories this week uh, involve major banks, especially in the UK. Uh, because my my story is also about profits and also about a UK banking group. Because um, my number is seventy-two percent. Uh, that is the profits dip which Lloyd's Banking Group posted this week. Uh, now, there are a few hidden numbers behind that figure, um, which might slip people by, and two of them are £4 billion and £1.2 billion. Uh, the £4 billion being the total spend Lloyd's made on its GSR3 digital transformation program between 2018 and 2020. Now GSR3 was set up under Lloyd's CEO, Antonio Horta Osario, who is stepping down later this year, and it was a uh, successor to the group's prior transformation scheme. Imaginative, imaginatively called GRS2, uh, which included a 40% increased spend in digital technologies. Now, GSR3 features four key pillars which were outlined in 2017, uh, digitization, driving greater customer relationships, boosting group-wide lending figures, and focusing on skills for the future. Uh, initially in 2018, the bank earmarked a £3 billion budget, but is obviously overspent to the £4 billion figure. Now, the 1.2 billion figure is both the profit that Lloyd's made last year after the dip and also the amount of money it spent on technology, which matches up nicely, uh, unless you're a shareholder, I suppose. Uh, The bank has... Steadily increased its technology spend over the years since 2018, since the start of that GSR3 program. In 2018, uh, the technology spend represented 16% of operating costs, or £1.3 billion. In 2019, the spend was 19% of operating costs, or £1.5 billion. And the figure this year, although being lower, £1.2 billion, um, this is the estimates we've taken from the from the results, not necessarily what Lloyd's themselves have put out. Um, it matches their profit and sort of shows that the group still means business in its technology spend, and also shows that while the pandemic and its effects might be hitting uh, profitability uh, behind the scenes, banks aren't necessarily slowing down on their their tech investment. Um, but some some big numbers there. What are, what are your initial thoughts on it, Sharon?
0: Yeah, I mean we were talking about um, you know legacy tech. Just on the last episode as well, um, because the Financial Conduct Authority found that more than 90% of UK's financial firms still rely on legacy tech. Um, And the worldwide IT spending in the banking and security sector is expected to decline um, by nearly 4.7% to 514 billion in total uh, for all of 2020, according to a Gartner report. Um, So, yeah, they estimated that... um, Spending on devices like PCs and mobile devices uh, will pretty much have the largest decline, falling 12.1%, and then followed by data center systems. Um, And also financial services groups plan to accelerate their investment into the next generation of technology. And that was according to a survey by Broadreach Financial Solutions. Um, So they essentially said that more than half of the financial sector C-suite executives and senior leaders wanted to implement new technologies into their companies' operations in the coming months. Um, And uh, in light of the Gartner report, they essentially said that the the main spend, uh, especially during this pandemic, will be focused on operations, uh, supply chains, revenue, and also the workforce. Uh, so Gartner forecasts technology spending the banking security um, industry to recover this year as well. So that's pretty interesting uh, when it comes to Lloyd's actually you know uh, looking at the, the profit number and also the spending number lining up quite well. there seems to have been something that they might have kept in mind. Um, and they were noting that almost all or more than the 500 responses, uh, said that the pandemic would have an impact on their operating models and tech implementation strategies. So perhaps that's something that we'll probably keep seeing as a trend in terms of these numbers that we're we're highlighting when it comes to the reports.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, we're rounding off the three stories this week with another uh, UK bank, um, but I won't I won't spoil it. Uh, Sharon, go, go ahead and give us your, your news and numbers.
0: <laughs> yes, it, it does seem to be just like bank oriented results. Uh, I guess it helps because it was there, like, I guess, re- reporting um, week. So, yes, my number is 10 um, as Barclays plans to close Pingit after 10 years service. So, the bank is sunsetting its long serving payments app Pingit, telling staff that the project has, quote, run its course. So according to Sifted sources, Barclays announced the closure earlier this month and a spokesperson from the bank said that the app was, quote, under review. For the time being, users will be able to manage their money, but will be contacted by the bank in due course. Pingit, which launched in 2012, managed to accrue more than 1.2 million downloads in its first year of operations. And it also joins a slew of other bank-sponsored digital ventures, heading to the scrap heap. And these include JP Morgan's bin and RBS's bow. And we also uh, spoke about this as well in the previous episode. I feel like we always do mention this um, at some point, because 2021 has already seen the closures of the likes of Scalable Capital in the UK, BBVA's Simple and Aslo, as well as Goldman Sachs's Clarity Money in the US, and 84.600 in Australia. And the latter was sold to the National Australian Bank, and merged into NAB's U Bank subsidiary, whilst Simple was sunsetted as a result of the acquisition of BBVA's US business by PNC. And also we saw Tandem sunsetting their credit card offering too. So consolidation will continue to play a significant role this year as the economic effects of COVID continues to hurt profit margins. I mean, just this week, we've seen uh, Wells Fargo as well sell its asset management unit for $2.1 billion. Um, and it said that it will keep a 9.9 percent equity interest in the spun-off operation after the deal closes, which is expected in the second half of the year. Plus we also see mT bank, which is uh, buying people's United uh, in a 7.6 billion all stock deal. and that's also expected to close in the fourth quarter this year. So yeah, we're seeing quite a lot of consolidation uh banks closing uh what do you think alex i i feel like you're definitely gonna add a lot more into this
1: well, thanks for setting me up um throw me for a loop there sharon i i feel like what i'm gonna say now is not is, isn't gonna be as groundbreaking as you set me up for no it's fine um,
0: no, anything it, it seems that, um,
1: that barclays is ah oh, well that's too kind um uh, but we all know that's not true um Yeah, according to the uh, sources, it seems there's been a bit of contention with Barclays uh, staff when it comes to the the shutting down of Pingit. It it sort of reminds me a little bit of things like uh, things that they were a little bit too early in the lifecycle of fintech. Um, Google Wallet comes to mind, which came out long before Google Pay and Apple Pay and thing and wallet services, uh, and then no one used it. Um, Sort of, you know the. Limited by the technology of their time, to quote uh, Tony Stark's dad. But um, yeah, it seems that from what sort of sources say that there are people in the in the development team who said that it was moving at a glacial pace, um, that it missed its opportunity. The bank never really gave it enough chance to become bigger than it already was. Um, the, the the name the name that comes to mind when you think of things like this is is ING's Yolt, which uh, ING started off as something under its own, under its own wing. And then when it became really successful, just decided to spin it off completely and set it off on its own way, especially after it saw a lot of success in the UK and in the Netherlands. Um, but it seems that uh, the story here is that Pingit had been something that a long time Barclays uh, upper management had sort of left by the wayside and not focused too much of their investment, in, which is uh, personally for me is a bit surprising, as I know that Barclays is a, a is a big bank that li- a, a bank that likes to talk about its technology aspirations and is one of those um, that likes to go to conferences and say we are the big, UK's biggest fintech and things like that. So perhaps it's a, a case of uh not wanting to uh have a separate offering, maybe they're going to be absorbing ping it into the main Barclays app. That appears to be the strategy. Um it might just be a case that, you know, why bother having I mean, I would say small, but it's accrued more than 1.2 million downloads, um, a small uh, offshoot than when you could just bring it in under your main app, which has a lot more use. Uh but it's definitely an interesting one when you think about the potential uh office politics that might might have gone in gone into it here. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. Um, We're going to be talking with Pablo about Strands and about open banking. But uh, before Sharon asks her questions, uh, I'm going to give Pablo a chance to introduce himself a little bit more, uh, talk about his role, and about what's happening at Strands this year. So take it away, Pablo.
2: Thanks, Alex. Well, I'm Pablo Reyes, and I'm the director of technology at Strands. my colleagues and I create products that help banks and financial institutions to get in the fintech race and lead it. We partner with them and do not compete with them. We've been doing this for, for the last 15 years already, and we've seen everything. I mean, th- this has been evolving a lot in, in this time. You can imagine we launched the, the first PFM in Europe with BBVA, two cuentas in Spain in 2008 and from that time to participating in a fintech jail. So imagine how much is the hype and how many the buzzwords in fintech and open banking that we need to lock them up. So it's been a wild ride.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And congratulations on winning the best open banking solution award at the Banking Technology Awards for your strands, SAU Open Hub. Can you tell us a little bit about its development and plans for this year?
2: Yeah, uh, OpenHab is one of the, the main products we have now. Uh, it's one of the most important too. It's been evolving a lot in, in the last years. As I was saying, years ago, you thought about uh, open banking, and aggregate. the main thing it came to mind is aggregating accounts. So you offer the possibility to a client to see all their accounts in one place, and that has changed completely. We we, we started with that, that, just like everyone else, but we have developed a complete hub that sometimes we call internally meta aggregator that helps us connect, aggregate, synchronize, and enrich data from all kinds of third parties, yet not only financial data. Um, and we are leveraging on different partners, um, on different sectors, we are, uh, we are working for example, on a project related to, um, the carbon footprint. So analyzing your transactions and partnering with third parties through open Hub, we aggregate information and we can analyze the environmental impact. Of your spending behaviors, and I believe this is uh, this is something we have been seeing moving in, in twenty twenty, maybe because of COVID and and people rethinking a little bit the, the way they live and everything. Uh, be, we've been uh, working on this a lot. Also, um, beyond financial uh, information, too, on, on on the fitness activity, right? We can through Open Hub, connect to. Applications or, or sources of information that can give us information about the, your fitness activity. So we can tell you, for example, to earn your next beer or tell you, hey, you went to a fast food restaurant and you haven't completed your 10,000 steps uh, for today. So pay off, uh, things like that. And w- something very important for us and our clients is uh, we are working on making the use of OpenHab simpler for our partners and clients. This means we are rethinking the way that the Open Hub is operated. We are moving it to the cloud. We are rethinking and rewriting our documentation, APIs, uh, examples, and everything to give a completely new way for our partners and clients to use the Open Hub in a way more simpler way that we believe anybody else is doing. So hopefully, I believe this will allow smaller banks to, that don't have the resources or the time to operate you know, complex systems and infrastructure to, to, to use a platform like, like ours and get the same benefits that the big ones are getting.
0: And how has open banking adoption changed through the course of the past two years? And where do you see open banking going?
2: well uh, I believe it's been from um, from a, a, a set of tools where the user had to proactively do things like the example of aggregating accounts you will open your app say add add accounts from other banks and manually um, adding your other banks so you could see them all in one place to uh, to a completely different thing. I mean, now we are making the life of people easier through open banking before we could give you some information. Yeah. So I, I make your life a little bit easier by saying, Hey, just look at this and you will see everything in one place. But now we can make your taxes. We can um, reconcile your transactions with your bills and invoices. We can get your, your tax field. Um, there is, a lot more we we can do now. So I believe we are starting to offer value to the customer through open banking. And I believe I don't know if you remember years ago. I don't know 10, 15 years ago when we started talking about uh, Web 2.0. There was something that was relevant at the time. You know that time when when the web started to being a place where people could contribute and not only consume. Um, it became the norm so quick that people even forgot it was a thing, and that's good. I believe the best adoptions are transparent, and sooner than later we'll stop talking. I believe about open banking because it will be part of the of the banking experience. One day, the e-commerce the e-commerce platform uh, won't need to ask you for all the, your details on the credit card or The the broker app you're using will securely get funds from your account so you don't have to make transfers to it. The the invoicing app you use to to manage your business will be reconciling your transactions automatically and things like that. So I think that's where we're going. We're, We're going to be offering more value to the customers.
0: And we've seen EcoSpend obtaining a large open banking contract by the HMRC a few weeks ago. Do you think this deal opens it up to further implementation by other public and private institutions to make it more mainstream?
2: Oh, well, I hope so. I mean, it's encouraging and good to see big traditional institutions like the HMRC to start getting involved in... In partnerships like this, uh, hopefully, this is extremely successful. Taxpayers can use the new system to pay their taxes in a much simpler way. They submit a lot of positive feedback, and if it has big adoption, they'll surely think of other use cases and and be willing to partner with other companies too, and they, they will leverage on this. And I believe the opportunities are are huge. We we worked on the on the making tax digital module with. Uh, HMRC last year too. We connect with the uh, HMRC and help uh, small businesses fill their taxes in a more efficient and effective way than before. And this in combination with the contract they have now with Ecospend, I believe it can change completely the way that people approach their taxes. And if this is successful, they will surely think of other use cases, not only HMRC, but other Public institutions, too. and that of obviously opens a, a big door for for startups and, and and other fintech companies.
1: Here we are in part three for the fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword, or a trend that our guest has had enough of and seen enough of on the conference circuit or the virtual Zoom meeting circuit. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in our jail or if it's already in there, an extended sentence. So Pablo, what term do you
2: wish to see locked away? Well, I like simple things. Okay. And I always thought that many people that use complex words and terms just want to make you think they're clever. And uh, most of the time, many people don't know what they're talking about. And the, the, the first word that came to mind, I had to check if it was in jail already. And obviously it was it's artificial intelligence and blockchain. So I know I cannot use those, but you need to get those life sentences. Uh, to add one more to jail, I will say microservice. Uh, the term is sometimes used as a fancy way of saying cool and modern architecture or infrastructure, which is very misleading in my opinion, a microservice architecture can be an improvement to your, the current technical architecture, but it can also end in a way more complicated architecture to maintain if those services are too small sometimes. So doing microservices is not good per se. Right. And luckily for us, I believe many people that say they are doing it and just doing services, which is good. So like with artificial intelligence, blockchain and microservice, it should be used when it makes sense.
1: Interesting. Is that is that uh, is that something you see a lot of them? That there's a sort of uh, snake oil salesman esque way of selling microservices to institutions as a way to make them uh, think that they're becoming more agile than they actually are.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a a way to say our infrastructure or our architecture is very modern. It's very futuristic. We are very intelligent, right? It's it's similar to when everyone says they are doing artificial intelligence. It's a way of saying, hey, we are pros. So it's quite similar with microservices. And it it also, it leaves a good uh, feeling on the client, I guess. But we need to know what they really mean.
1: Interesting. I think that uh, it, it comes across very similarly to, and you already mentioned them AI and blockchain as the things that are already in the jail. And I, I, I did catch your, your plea there for them to get life sentences and we, we'll have to consider that as well. Um, but microservices, I mean, I think that by virtue of it being very similar to the other two, it deserves at least a, uh, a rap on the knuckles at the very least, especially if there are firms out there that are using it in that way of that sort of, you know, it's the same old thing, but better. Um, Sharon, what do you think? Oh,
0: we've got an, another one for AI. <laughs> like, I feel like everyone just doesn't want to see this word ever again for as long as they live. Um, and as much as we would like to think we have the power to completely banish it from this planet, um, I don't think we can do too much. Fine. You know what? I've heard your impassioned pleas, both you and everyone else. Um, who've, who've come on have cited it. So yes, it will get life. Okay. We will give AI and blockchain life in jail. I'll put a little update, um, on, on our little list that we have. Um, microservices. I haven't seen it as much, but if it is committing the same crime, then maybe I'll start it off with the same sentence. It's back to my punitive measures. I will give this one five years, five years in jail. Let's, let's stop it whilst it, you know it's still fresh. What do you think, Alex?
1: Five years sounds fine to me. I mean, we can't be seen to be being lenient to it if we are already thrown down, uh, well, the blockchain and AI. Pablo, do you think five years is fair enough?
2: I think it's fair enough because probably in five years we'll be talking about the nanoservices so
1: (laughs) then we'll
0: try and stop that in its tracks
2: exactly (laughs) we we can set microservice free in five years
1: (laughs) well that's all we have time for for this episode of what the fintech thanks to Sharon and Pablo for joining me but before we sign off uh, we've got the opportunity to plug socials or websites projects and more so uh, yeah Sharon what, what have you got to plug
0: Oh, well, of course, as usual, you can find me by searching my name, Sharon Kitts Kamathi. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, keep sending me your wonderful messages of adoration. Um, also, you can find me uh, at fintechkits. That's at fintech and then kits like, you know, your gym kits or your PE kits or whatever. Um, and you can just, you know, send me a, a DMs or a little, little message, but don't tag me in long-winded posts please um i'm just not for it and i end up muting them um, also please do keep your eye out for the march edition of the banking technology magazine um, it's going to be focusing on women in fintech um in celebration of the international women's
1: day so keep your eyes peeled Great! You can find me on Twitter at, at @ad_hamilton91, and by searching my name on LinkedIn. I'd appreciate the follows on Twitter because I really, really want to get to 2,000 followers. Because my my fiance has beaten me very handily in the Twitter follower account, despite starting a lot later than me on the website. So there's a competition in my house, and I need to win it. So if you're listening, please go and follow me. Uh, also, um, we've got uh, a new report out on the FinTech Futures website about the use of data analytics in fintech, Uh, go and check that out. It's a big deep dive using survey results, finding out about how people are reacting to and utilizing data analytics as we move forward into a new uh, decade. Uh, But that's about it from my side.
2: Uh, Pablo, what what about you? What uh, What have you got to plug? Well, I'm not very active on social media, honestly, but I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. I sometimes write articles about data science or technology or uh, fintech. So hopefully you you enjoy some of those.
1: Excellent, and as for fintech features, you can find us online at www.fintechfeatures.com, on Twitter at fintechfeatures, and on LinkedIn just by searching fintech features and looking for the two Fs logo. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find us, uh, write a review, recommend us to a friend, uh, spam someone on Twitter, whatever you want to do. We thank you for any and all support. Uh, We'll soon see you again for another episode, but until then, goodbye.